Christ. Hello. 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 Hey up. Hey up. Hey up, listeners. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to Pedagogzilla, the podagogic podcast where we ponder perceptions of pedagogy through practical prodding with the burger of pop culture. I'm Alan Bennett. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm not Alan Bennett. I'm Mike Collins. And I'm Mark Childs. I'm a learning designer at the Open University and a guy with a microphone. I'm a learning designer at the OU and I have a PhD in education. That's my only claim to fame. You see, we each bring something to the super special recipe that is Pedagodzilla. So this week is an extra special week because we're celebrating uh, the 30th anniversary of inverted commas cult classic Blade Runner. I say celebrating the 30th anniversary, we are recording this in the same year as the 30th anniversary. I think we've missed the anniversary now. Have we? Okay, right. I think. I mean, the, the key date for me was that it's set in November 2019, and it is November 2019. Yes. I see. Yeah. Oh, I missed that entirely. <laughs> oh, whoops. Okay. <laughs> Updates, show notes. Anyway, so to celebrate that, mm. uh, I'll be ambushing Mark with a pedagogic question of which he has literally no idea. Because Mark assured me in the run-up to this that not only is his knowledge of Blade Runner utterly encyclopedic, but he knows all pedagogy uh, ever has ever been created. Oh my god. Well, also, I think mainly it was that I am prepared to uh, blag my way through anything rather than know anything, <laughs> but there we go. Yeah, so if Mark can successfully navigate this absolute dog's breakfast of a question, then mm, he gets a super special medal or, or some sort of prize yet to be determined. Anyway, uh, so... I get to wear this leftover poppy he gets that's to, in the studio. Yeah, we found a, a leftover poppy in the, uh, the podcasting booth. So, this week's question is... How do Blade Runner's replicants rebel using the Montessori method? Oh my god, okay, right. I'm going okay. to give Mark a minute to think about that. Okay, right. Well, we'll be talking about Blade Runner, and then you'll be telling me a little bit about the Montessori method, and then uh, while you're doing that, I will be tying the two together. Okay, dokie. Okay. Okay, so... Part one, the question. So let's break down our question. How do Blade Runner's replicants rebel using the Montessori method? So first things first, the nice easy fun bit, what on earth is Blade Runner? Okay, so uh, based on a novel by Philip K. Dick called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it's set in what was when it was written the future of November 2019, well the film set in November 2019. It's uh, a world which has started to fall apart and everyone who's anyone has escaped to live off-world on colonies. So what's left behind are the dregs of humanity, more or less. A Blade Runner is somebody who retires, i.e. kills, replicants. Replicants are artificial life forms who are pretty much indistinguishable from humans. They can, uh, they can breathe, they can sort of bleed, uh, they can reproduce. Oh, can they reproduce? They, well, I, I thought the idea was that they couldn't reproduce, but they could reproduce. Yes. Hashtag possible spoiler alert. For the sequel. Yes. Okay. Um, and the key thing is that they don't have empathy for living things. So in this future world, most animals have died off and they're replaced by artificial life forms. So we have artificial owls and snakes and so on. And so the way to track and test for a replicant is to ask them a series of empathy questions. Which is the Voikampf Voikampf test. Voikampf test. Yes. So it's an empathy test, but Voikampf sh for short. 
which is <laughs> slightly, okay, slightly longer, but never mind. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so when we see somebody asking, that's asked quite a few times. So the central character, the Blade Runner, is hired, six of them, six of these replicants have escaped to Earth to try and track down their creator to get an extended life, a lifespan because they only live for about five or six years. And so the replicant, the, the Blade Runner, is recruited to kill them all, shoot them all. Two of them die. Well, in one version, the original version. Oh, sorry, one uh, kill them all, shoot them all, being a euphemism for retiring them. Yes. No, wait, retiring them being a euphemism, the euphemism for, for killing, killing and shooting. shooting them. Yes, so shooting and killing in that order. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so it's renowned for having so many different edits. It's something like eight different edits. Yeah, there's like the director's cuts, the director's director's cuts, the director's mum's cut. The final director's cuts, the final, <laughs> final cut. Yeah, there's the theatrical version, and then there's the UK theatrical version, and then there's the DV, there's the, the video version, because it's originally, of course, we had back in the days of video, because we were talking about the 80s. Um, and then there was a director's cut, which wasn't really the director's cut. It was, uh, it was something the studio put together, and then we end up with a final cut. So some point between the director's cut and the final cut, there's, they, they try and break into the, uh, to the to their creator's big factory type place, the headquarters. And in the original version, one of them's killed in the remake. In the final cut, two of them are killed. That's one of the very slight differences between the penultimate cut and the final cut. Not the Mark scene or the different cuts. <laughs> I watched them back to back. Of them. <laughs> I, I watched them back to back to look for all the differences. So yeah, I am that much of a nerd. And that was the one. I went, okay, it was one before. Now it's two. Um, and then to the internet, <laughs> I could have found that out from the internet. But no, oh no, it was uh, it's on the internet somewhere. And so and then basically, in he also tests one in order to kind of try out how accurate his Voigtkampf test is, and finds out that the one he's testing also fails the Voigtkampf test. But she doesn't know she's a replicant. The reason she doesn't know is that she's been given all these memories that are all fake memories, and this this is kind of how they creates the sort of sense that they are alive. Um, and then, um, spoiler, the guy that they've recruited, our protagonist, turns out by the end of the film to also be a replicant and all of his memories are fake. Yeah, it's just, it's a fantastically cool, yeah. it's a fantastic, it's uh, Harrison Ford, yeah. um, who is just, or he's, he's excellent in everything he's in, he's just kind of... Yeah, he's slightly flatline in this, supposedly. Oh, but I he think just, it's a really good performance. It's just a nice yeah. kind of middling... It's hard-boiled. It's basically, it was the first real cyberpunk thing. So mm. it's using the whole uh, using the whole film noir, hard-boiled thing, but with a kind of science fiction edge. And so it was the first visualization of cyberpunk that we saw. In, def in mainstream cinema, at least, because, I mean, cyberpunk itself had been a relatively... I'd say semi-well-known concept for... In books. Oh, I suppose, just in books? I don't I, think I it'd been a movie. It'd been percolating oh, out yeah, into things. I can't things. think of a... Sort of comic books and things. Oh, maybe in comic books, but definitely vis film visuals, it was the first yeah. visualisation of cyberpunk. And so it kicked off a whole film genre. And the visuals, oh my God, for this... Uh, the effects in this movie stand up incredibly mm. even today. I mean, there's some wonderful grotesquerie with um, sort of the body parts and the eyes particularly, oh, yeah. Yeah. are just oh, horrifying. But even the stuff with mm -hmm. the uh, the flying cars and the cityscapes yeah. oh, looks yeah. superb or even today. Sid Mead, yeah, visual genius, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that sort of stuff is incredible. And, of course, it's got, I would say, the most well-known soliloquy that wasn't written by Shakespeare. Oh, of course, yes. Um, I have you, seen... Um, things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glisten in the dark. Uh, near the Tanhauser Gate. 
all those moments we lost in time, like tears in what rain. Mark's doing this from memory. Time to die. I, I, yeah, I would say 50% of the people listening to this would be able to do that from... No! Really? No! Okay. I was thinking I have seen a KFC employee um, drop a burger. I have seen... <laughs> <laughs> goldfish floating belly up. Uh, like, I, you know, I, I, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I can't remember any of this. But what's amazing is that Rutger Howe, who delivers that, did it impromptu on set, came up with that. That is pretty cool. I know. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a fantastically cool movie. And I know it always gets referred to as a cult classic. Mm. But, oh, that, I yeah. Think, what, what, I think uh, there have got to be more people who've seen that than have seen loads of inverted commas mainstream releases by the th- now. The thing was, I didn't realise this until the sequel came out, but they were saying when it first came out, it wasn't successful because, you know, this was in the days, this was 1982 or something. I can't remember when it came out. Th- 82, I think. And, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. You won't believe this, but we didn't have the internet back then. I really? Know. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> yeah, you young youngsters wouldn't believe this. But, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I, I'd seen it. All my friends had seen it. We were just talking about it for weeks afterwards, months afterwards. So as far as I was concerned, it was a fantastically popular film. And it was only recently when Blade Runner 2049 came out that they said the first one hadn't been successful that I found out it had been a bit of a flop when it was released. Shawshank Redemption is the same, though. That was a, a cinematic mm. flop and then did yeah. very well at uh, video. Yeah, and also now most people's favourite movie. It's the one that crops up more top on. Shawshank. Top. Yeah. It's the top. It's the movie that comes up top in more top ten movies than any other film. We should do Shawshank. We should also talk about okay. the Montessori method. Okay, fair enough. Uh, as the second part of our question, obviously okay. our question has two components: Blade Runner and the Montessori method. So they have a quite. I mean, Montessori schools all over the world. They are more about providing kids with the self-direction, with the liberty to choose their own path. Not necessarily about assessment all the time, but about actually exploring things and focusing on the sort of affin- affinity sort of elements of, you know, caring, sharing, creating their own thing, finding their own way. They're pretty well renowned for um, really providing students, learners with massive amounts of self-esteem, really. They come out actually, you know, with a sort of, with a bit more well-rounded, a bit more well-grounded, I think, in, in, from what I've seen and from what some of the evidence indicates. My line manager went to one. And so, yeah, I think, I think that kind, there are some of the, there are one or two other things that there's the well, Waldorf Steiner thing, which is uh, pretty dodgy in a lot of ways because it's a kind of weird faith school thing because they do this androsophy stuff. Okay, so they're not all the same, but I think as far as in the Montessori stuff and the A.S. Neal stuff, um, I went to Summerhill School, but not the A.S. Neal Summerhill School, but quite a few people going, ooh, you went to Summerhill. And I go, yeah, okay, it was just a standard comprehensive, but A.S. Neal, same sort of stuff. Kids do what they want, not what they want, but they, they plan their own learning, basically. How does that tie in with what you've got? Completely wrong. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, completely wrong. Okay, go ahead. That's, okay, um, you'll have to edit all that stuff out then. <laughs> no, actually, you've got it. Uh, you've, you've hit the nail on the head Ooh, with okay. the, the top level summary. Right. Okay. So I've got it. Um, my literal first note is complete anarchy, question mark. Uh, because when I started researching Montessori, I heard a, an interview on the radio uh, about it, Radio 4. I did an interview to a Montessori teacher recently. Okay. Uh, and she was describing it, and it sounded like complete chaos. Mm. Um, but yeah, a couple of principles. So uh, as you said, it's all more about, we talked about graduate outcomes before. Mm-hmm. It's more about sit, having a complete person at the other side rather than a person who has been measured and metriced mm. to the nth degree. Uh, there's a couple of principles behind it. So um, 
they base it on four phases of brain development, which, yeah, see, so Mark is raising an eyebrow, mm -hmm. an eyebrow raised for me as well, because mm. we have previously had a discussion about um, the relative sort of uh, neurological evidence behind uh, brain plasticity at different ages. But bear with. Mm. Well, I mean, because I did read up on this quite recently. Mm. I don't, can't remember why in connection with what, which is why I might be slightly more clued up than I would be normally. But I remember reading that and thinking, but yes, there is a thing about adolescence ending at the age of 25 because there's a different brain, there's a different brain processing going on at that age. So, um, and yes, so it's not. Hello, Editing Mike here. So about a month after doing this recording, I read the book the Brain, The Story of You by David Eagleman. And there's bits of this recording where I get a bit sniffy because I don't really understand the brain stuff. Unfortunately, I now understand it a little better. Wouldn't call myself a brain surgeon, but yeah, definitely slightly less doe-eyed naivety on my part. So while you may hear me be a little bit grumbly and snuffly on some of the elements that we are about to cover, please rest assured that during the edit, I am banging my head on the desk in frustration at how hard I have chosen to shake the wrong end of the stick at times. Right, anyway, back with the show. Oh, and I really encourage you to read the book. It's very accessible and and fun. Uh, it's The Brain, The Story of You by David Eagleman. Yeah, it's got some grounding in science, I think. Mm, okay, yeah. Okay. So we've got a four phase of brain development. There's a couple of principles by which um, it is executed. So it's got uh, there's a big focus on the space. So the space in which it occurs should be spacious. It okay. should be uh, sort of uh, uncluttered mm -hmm. and should have the uh, sort of the learning objects and artifacts sorted by subject as opposed to level. There's mixed age classrooms, mm -hmm. which is, I think, quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Definitely uh, a bit of a throwback to an older style of, uh, of teaching. Or a smaller scale. I mean, that still happens in a lot of rural schools. Yeah. You'll end up with two or three years in the same group because that's the only way you can get everybody taught at the same location yeah. because if you wanted to split them up, you'd have to bust them further. And, and I think there's a lot of benefits to it in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen um, like a three-year-old who meets a five-year-old mm. and then just is like, oh my God, I want to be this five-year-old and then follows them around. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I did a project in which we were linking together schools from across Europe through video conferencing and that sort of stuff, social media, and getting them to teach each other about their particular national literature. And that worked That worked really well when it was 13-year-olds talking to 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds talking to 15-year-olds. But when we had the 13-year-olds talking to the 15-year-olds, there was suddenly a kind of, oh, these people are so much older than me because two years feels like a big difference then. So there was an element of feeling intimidated, but that's because they grew up in a school, in, a, in an environment where they only mixed with people who are exactly the same age as themselves. Mm. So that whole talking to somebody two years older probably would have been a bigger deal, whereas actually if they'd always learnt in that way and mixed with different age groups, then it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have had that problem. Okay, so those age groups are um, idly biddly babbies, then you've got your three to six year olds, your six to 12 year olds, and then your oldlingers. Interestingly, okay. there's nothing in the method for adult learners. Okay. which was, I found significant. Uh, but I like the curriculum they've got around the different levels. So uh, the curriculum for your, your kind of your baby group is coordinated movement and independence. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the focus. And it's basically having things within hand's reach that are tactile, of, uh, fo the focus on uh, surfaces, things like that, things that uh, relate to sensory input. There's a thing that's coming through now called physical literacy and to go with all the digital literacy and the normal literacy and the media literacy and stuff like that. So I saw a tweet from Walsall Council today who are actually they're promoting 
Um, physical literacy, so the whole idea of being able to move around and actually knowing about how your body works and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so um, again, not just for babies, but all the way through to adult learners would all benefit from a bit of physical literacy. Yeah. So uh, three, six-year-olds, uh, they've yeah. got this focus on uh, practical life, sensorial kind of stuff, language, and introduction to mathematics, which I think is really quite wow. interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I guess maths is a great grounding for kind of principles of logic and all sorts and just how the world works, how stuff works. Yeah, and basic, really basic maths. I mean, you know, uh, bees can do basic maths, you know, so apparently. So um, are you looking at me blankly? No, no, I'm not looking blankly. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding, but I'm also scratching my head. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah, I think that was in the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast a couple of weeks back. But, yeah, they've, they've found that bees can count. So, yeah, maths is integral to the way that we function interact with the world. So, And one of the biggest problems with l education as a whole is that so many children are taught that they can't do maths and they end up with this maths anxiety and that has a huge knock-on in their ability to interact with the world. Afterwards. I have a theory about that. Okay. I think it's because a lot of the people teaching maths aren't confident in their own maths. That would make a lot of sense. I think people pick up on um, subconscious cues and things mm. like that, particularly where you've got uh, mixed uh, specialism environments like sort of lower middle school, lower and middle schools, uh, where you may have a teacher who's perhaps, you know, fine on you know, the humanities and then it gets to kind of the sciences and your, your maths and they are less comfortable there. And I think uh, people or children have the emotional intelligence to pick up on those cues and make the associations. So that's interesting. So with the Montessori stuff, I'm guessing that actually the freedom that is being allowed to the learners, actually one of the things also to be looked at is the freedom that that's allowed to the Educators. Yeah, I think educators within this method are seen sort of as facilitators as much mm. as anything else. It's kind of interesting. There's a kind of co-teaching um, approach in there with, between the age groups. So it's kind of like a, oh, I don't want to say co-facilitation of the learning because that sounds like a wanky term thrown together. Yeah. But No, yeah. I think co-facilitation, okay, maybe. Yeah, but the whole idea of learning from your students, yeah, I mean, it's, it does sound really pretentious There it is. You this. can literally hear the bong. Yeah, yeah, man, I like to learn, learn from, from my me. students. I learn so much more from my students than they learn from me. <laughs> but I was supposed to be teaching you, man, but, but you, you taught, taught me. <laughs> but unfortunately, not unfortunately, unfortunately, fortunately that the, the pretentious people have got hold of that as a concept, but the reality is that that is what happens, really. Yeah. And then, so the curriculum for six, six to 12 year olds, and to be fair, this was, um, I found this on a couple of sites. I don't know if this is universal's Montessori method, but it just seemed like a really, really neat curriculum. It was great lessons, so specific studies, uh, coming of the universe and the earth, so astronomy, meteorology, chemistry, physics, geology, ge geography. Okay. Coming of life, biology, botanics. Botanics? Botanics. Botanics. Botany, surely. Environment. <laughs> botany or botanics. Yeah, bot botany, yeah. Evolution of life. Controversial okay. for some. Uh, some well, idiots. Yeah. Uh, zoology. Coming of human beings. History, culture, social science, uh, scientific discoveries and inventions. Uh, communication in signs. So reading, writing, linguistics. Uh, and the story of numbers. So mathematics, origin of numbers, systems of numbers and geometry. Seems like a brilliantly well-rounded curriculum to me. Yeah, and if you look at the average primary, secondary school uh, curriculum, about half of it is taken up with literacy hour and numeracy stuff and all that sort of stuff, all these disjointed, separate disciplines, most of which are pretty rote stuff, which is, that, as we talked about before, the rote stuff is useful, it's a way to learn, but it's also boring as hell. 
So, um, so coming up with something that is actually about the way the world works, which is it's not this and this and this. There aren't really three sciences or six sciences or whatever. It's just reality. That seems reasonable. Yeah. In fact, going to basis, so we just quickly <clears throat> return to those four phases of the brain. So mm -hmm. I've, I've jotted them down here. So they've got um, four phases of brain development. So there's four planes of brain development is what they kind of okay. base this on. And looking at it, I can see that there's some of it, but it, it looks like something that's based on observation, possibly slightly more yeah. than sort of the neurological basis, essentially because it seems to have this cutoff at the end. of. <laughs> so Paul Kirshner would not approve. Oh, yeah, I just I, I I would love to if this uh, if it's got some neurological basis to it then fine but then you know we, we we need to do that that episode at some point which is looking at qualitative observational experiential data versus positivist neurological data and which ones uh, is it okay to use both or just one yeah. at some point but you know if you're looking at the way students students are learning and trying stuff out and seeing that it works and then doing more of it then I think that's fine. Yeah, um, and to be fair, I've uh, this is a very cursory scan on my okay. part. So if you are a Montessori mm. teacher and you are aware of the neurological evidence that supports these four phases of brain development and apparently by sin of omission says that brains stop developing when people are... How old was it? Uh, 18. Yeah. Um, oh, how was it 18? <clears throat> oh, no. So uh, that says that people's brains stop developing when they're 24. Yeah. Um, then uh, then please do get in touch. Uh, happy to uh, to do a retcon on this uh, at a later date. Anyway, so four phases. Okay. First phase starts at birth and continues until they are six years old, and it's when they've got their absorbent mind, mm -hmm. uh, which takes and absorbs every aspect, good and bad, of the environment, uh, language, and culture, what's around them. Mm -hmm. Hoover, Hoover, Hoover. I mean, I guess it makes sense just because born all empty, isn't it? I mean, children are essentially, we're as a species born mostly half-formed uh, compared to um, a lot of our mammalian cousins. You look at a horse, a tiny horse comes out, same with giraffes. We come out as like a little lump. Oh, yeah, and that's kind of why we ended up top of the food chain is because, apart from um, some bacteria, I suppose, that <laughs> live off us, but, um, yeah, is that uh, we take so much longer to form than actually we can develop all of these sorts of ideas. It's the whole Dawkins thing is that actually memes take over from genes. That actually, it's our socialization that makes us so effective as predators, etc., rather than our, the way we're born. Um, and yeah, because we have a social network that enables us to survive long enough in order to, for this brain to work. Okay, so next phase, uh, six to 12 year old, second plane, uh, the child possesses, and this is the bit where I slight question mark, mm -hmm. a rational mind, having met several six year olds. Um, not sure how rational, but um, which implores them to the world of imagination, abstract thinking. So the imagination side, I can absolutely see, and I suppose abstract thinking is a, a natural companion to that. I'm not sure I'd call it the rational mind, to be perfectly honest. I think it's seeing cause, maybe it's talking about seeing causal relationships between things. So I do this, I, I don't know, I hold this poppy up and I drop it, it falls. I do that again, and it falls, and there's actually a process involved there. My and God, this... have I discovered gravity? <laughs> well, <laughs> Am I this genius? Well, except that kids will, I mean, even if you're not aware of what gravity is, you know that this thing will always follow this. I mean, there could be a, you know, the, um, <laughs> oh God, what's it called? Uh, alter proc ergo, no, post hoc ergo proctor hoc fallacy. That sounds like a condition that one gets in it's, one's it trouser is, regions. It's, <laughs> it's a condition we all end up with at some point. Oh, Christ. Is, no, no, which is basically believing that because we do this and this happens as a consequence, uh, and this happens afterwards, then the thing that's happened afterwards is as a consequence of what we've done. Oh, so, yes. So basically, I wear this particular pair of pants and I score a, uh, a hat trick. 
Therefore, if I put these pants on again, I'm more likely to score that yeah, hat-trick again. Correlation and um, causation. Causation is yes. not correlation. But you, I think maybe what they're saying is that at that age, you are starting to make those connections and it's natural to form those sorts of connections in your brain. Bloody hell, I was willing to give this a really good kicking and I'm becoming, I'm getting turned to it, getting turned around to it. Well, I don't, I don't know whether or not, I mean, it's not evidenced, I'm just saying that actually I could see how it could work. Well, no, I, I, I totally agree, it's sort of based on my own observation yeah. of people what have been around me and have been small, it's, yeah. it's hard not to go, oh yeah. You can see something happening there. Yeah. Okay, what's the next Bloody phase? Marie Montessori, is it Marie or Maria Montessori, the mm. lady who came up with it? I thought Montessori, it sounded like a, a Swiss mountain for a while. And then I was like, oh, it's a person. Uh, so I thought it was Montessori. You know. Montessori. Yeah. Hello, I'm Montessori. <laughs> Big bloke with a flat cap Mr. and a Sorry. pint of How are you today? <laughs> well, I'm not down pub. I'm teaching children in a lovely abstract environment in mixed age classrooms. Um, so in the third plane, 12 to 18 years old, uh, the teenager has a humanistic mind which desires to understand humanity and contribute to society. Got a big question mark over that one. I was a little turd. Yeah, there is a phase at which there's a kind of theory of mind. So that's basically that you perceive the world as just happening to you and you don't necessarily have the idea that somebody else could see the world differently and that that's a different valid viewpoint. And okay, obviously Republicans and, and sort of people under three don't have that. And so, um, oops, bit of politics. <laughs> Not even local politics. No, what? no, no. I don't know where that came from. Well, you know, we've got a North American audience now, so you know. I just thought I'd, I'd make it more available to people on that side. Really Cons like conservatives are Republicans. Yes, this is true. Yes, okay. Yes, that's uh, and also. Well, you, you, is, is there anybody else we've not isolated <laughs> so far? <laughs> no. Should we slate anybody else? Okay, no. I, <laughs> but there are. I mean, also. I mean, there are some kind of. It's, it's difficult for people who some people who aren't neurotypical to actually put their minds in the place of somebody who's who's not them. And this is part of that whole process of being able to visualize things from a different point of view. And that's not that's something that evolves as we, uh, that grows within us, that we develop at a certain stage. So but I thought that had, that was sort of around three or four or something. But but anyway. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting one. I, to be fair, so the last plane of development is the one that has my eyebrows crashing into each other. Okay, I can see uh, that happening, Mike. <laughs> uh, so 18 to 24, the adult explores the world with a specialist mind, finding his or her place in it. I have a big angry yeah. problem with that. That's, I mean, I'm 56 and I still haven't found a place, my place in the world. Ditto. I think one finds, one specialises and finds one's place essentially because one um, is necessitated to by needing to put dinner on the table and nobody wants to employ a generalist. But no, ab absolutely. I mean, I think there's a real role for generalists within society that actually it's the generalists that tend to pull things together. But we do need specialists as well. But it's specialists who are actually the ones that are, are valued particularly. And mm. so, yes, you have to find a specialism. I mean, I bounced around and I kind of got into learning and teaching and educational technology when I was in my 30s, I think, early 30s. So, yeah, I've been doing it since, yeah, 36 was when I started doing this. I think Mark and I are probably really good examples of why, I mean, to be fair, maybe we've just stopped developing um, as late teenagers, which actually comes to think of it based on a great deal of evidence of the things we've discussed up to this point could well be true. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, Mark and I are fantastically deeply interested each in an enormous broad variety of things. Very few have anything to do with the stuff that we work at. Mm. Mark uh, can quote entire lines from movies uh, on demand, almost any movie that you, you're like the, the quintessential geek encyclopedia. 
Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I mean, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, uh, sort of every time, every, you know, I still want to study stuff. I mean, I'm thinking of doing an MPhil next year. So in, you know, history of philosophy, well, that's nothing to do with my job or anything I've done with up to that point, but it's just I want to know about this sort of stuff. I mean, mm. a job where you're just paid every week to go away and find out stuff would be absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So, But, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we have, like you said, you have to put food yeah. on the table. The world needs the generalists. The world wants specialists. And that yeah. really, really grinds my beef. Yes. And so the idea that you that's part of your finding your way in the world. Yeah, it's great. And maybe the Montessori method helps people f- to do that by giving them all these options. But, but you know, but maybe maybe that's the failing of our education is it hasn't given us enough of a broad scope to find what our role in the world is. I think. So I think that's, I mean, that's everything I wanted to say about uh, Montessori. Okay. I mean, I think there's a lot more to cover within there mm-hmm. because it's an entire like school system. But that seemed to me to be the headlines that jumped out. Okay. Once again, if you're a Montessori expert, please do feel free to get mm-hmm. in touch if I've missed or misrepresented uh, anything uh, massive because, um, God, yeah, there's a lot of information out on it. And it's huge. But also blagging, as we've just discussed. Anyway, so with that and Blade Runner properly encapsulated, okay. let's return to our question in the second part of the show. Part 2. The Answer So, returning to our question, how do Blade Runner's replicants rebel using the Montessori method? We've talked about Blade Runner, we've talked about Montessori. Mark. (laughs) Okay. Um, Part of it, I think, is that they're rebelling despite the absence of it. So when we're talking about, I mean, these, these replicants, they're born pretty much as adults. So they don't have that whole background of education. They don't have that growth. They don't have those four phases that we just talked to. It's like they are created fully formed. And all of that, so all those phases are manufactured post hoc. Or So basically you have to go back and in order to have that kind of malleable phase, in order to have those other phases in there, they're actually, that's why the memories are so important. So they create the whole thing, so they have a memory of the very first. I mean, in the, the sequel, there's the whole thing with the wooden with the wooden horse that the guy hides, but it's he's, it's been implanted. There's all these photographs that call back these sorts of things. These are all a way to create this kind of ba- uh, background, l- lowest level stratum of memories of personality and everything, in order for all the other things to be built on. And that's what I think the Montessori method seems to be trying to do effectively and thinking about what do people need at this particular stage. And this is what the creators of the replicants have done, is it's not just about creating these bodies, it's about creating brains that will behave themselves and act how you want them to be, because they're soldiers or they're pleasure droids, not droids, but you know, they're pleasure replicants or whatever, or da- and yet there's all these other things they want to be doing. And all those other things that they want to be doing, I think, happen despite the fact that all this stuff's been programmed into them. The whole idea, I think, of we are just our memories. Maybe that's what, I mean, people would argue that's what the whole education system's about. It's about creating factory fodder. That's why we get into the idea of sitting in, in rows, why we have to memorize stuff, why we get used to just turning up at 8.30 in the morning and not leaving until 4 and sitting there and doing what you're told and being told off of doing what you're told. And I mean, in my generation, beaten if you didn't do what you were told, because I'd still remember corporal punishment, never happened to me, but happened to some of my mates. So this is a sort of idea that that's actually that's what education's for. And that's obviously why Dewey in the 30s and 40s and Montessori building on that kind of broke away from that mold. It's going, actually, people could be more than this. But obviously, the replicants, 
the replicants are straight to the product. They are they are product. Yeah, they are the product. They are the graduate outcome at the other end, ignoring the development. And it, well, all the development is to lock them into being as much part of what they want to, you know, as, as part of much their creators want them to be as possible, so that they won't rebel. I see. So the creators. Uh, perspective is, if we go back to those four phases of brain yeah. development, it, it literally goes straight to place in the world specialism without the building up of um, inquiry and kind of interconnected, well, inquiry, interconnectedness, um, that sort of social uh, sphere. Is that, I, would that be an accurate way to describe I would it? say that, that you need all those different phases because they are human-like as much as possible. So you need all those, I mean, if you're building on that, if you're using those four phases, I guess if I were program, if I was programming a replicant, I would ensure that the first phase went in there. You got an adult, I don't know, Rutger Hauer, and so you've got this this body there that's a, an adult, but you're, the brain is still plastic, and the brain is still that of an infant. So you program it with the first level stuff, but making sure that's as locked down as possible in order to end up with that specialism, and then the next level, and then you put put that in, and then you create these memories, artificially generate them, so they can recall them, and then so the next level, and so you got a Rick Deckard. He's obviously had all of this just loaded into his brain, this memory of being a kid, of then the next stage, which is, so, so yes, a kid and then an, adult, an adolescent, and then a Blade Runner for the last 10 years or whatever, but he can't be because he's a new model, he's an Nexus 6, and so he can only be the same age as all the rest of them. And yet all of this memory of having worked for the police force and, and having, um, what's his name, Gaff as a partner and all that kind of thing, all of that could be to some extent real, but it can't go back that far. I mean, Gaff believes that they were partners. He says a brilliant line. He says uh, he wanted to he wanted to work alone, and I wanted to work alone. So we worked together to make sure that worked out, and that <laughs> entirely well encapsulates that exact that that kind of relationship. But that can't go back that far unless Gaff's in on it, because he yeah, because well, Gaff discovers that he's a, a rep, that Rick, Rick Deckard's a replicant because he's got that dream of the unicorn, and so he dreams he's a unicorn. This is part of the bedrock of his personality, but that's fake. That's been put in there. And then Gaff has found that on some computer database somewhere and knows that Deckard dreams about unicorns, so it makes him a little origami unicorn to go, yeah, you're a replicant too. And uh, Rick Deckard looks at it, smiles to himself, crumples it up and walks off because he's fine with that because he's got uh, his partner, Rachel, who again believes that she's human because she's been had all these things implanted. The question is, why then do they rebel? That's an excellent question. I mean, I, would, I feel there's something that possibly relevant here, which we didn't discuss in Montessori, mm -hmm. which is one of the uh, the tenements uh, underpinning it is the it, tenements. The tenements, yeah, like like <laughs> David, the Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> Been through this in the all previous the, episode. All the <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the watsits. Yeah, um, one of the slum it, buildings uh, is that because there's uh, more freedom for uh, the child slash adolescent in yeah. the classroom to uh, self-select what it is they're studying to some degree, from what I can understand. In um, the Montessori method. In the Montessori yeah. method. Um, it gives them the ability to, to identify their own strengths and yeah. work to reinforce them. Yeah, whereas for the replicants, all of that's been manufactured so that when they get their specialism, they're happy with that specialism. I'm a soldier or whatever. But, you know, um, um, what's her name? Not Pris, the the one, um, the other character. That's the one who becomes a snake dancer. She's a, she's a soldier as well, but she wants to be a snake dancer and take her clothes off and dance with a snake. So obviously she's rebelling from being a soldier. None of them want to die. None of the, I mean, yeah, okay, they've seen attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, but they don't want to do that anymore. They want to come back to Earth and they want to live longer and they want to be 
they want to, you know, they want to survive and they want to do other things. So somehow, even though they've been locked down, even though they've used this idea that there are these stages to go through and they've been given these fake memories to lock them into this kind of life, like we would like happen to us, basically, through our school through our schooling, like, oh, you're good at physics, you will be a physicist. You know, oh, oh yeah, I want to be a writer. I just want to go to art school and just hang out with people. No, no, you're good at physics. I'm talking about myself now. Oops. This is me. This is my life. It's like, yes, you, you've shown some aptitude towards maths. You have to do this because that's what we need. And all the other options about being a writer or whatever, they're just taken away from you because that's not what society Mark's needs. Mark's frustrations are coming through in full force in this episode. <laughs> and like he's getting what his, the arms are getting so emphatic. Yeah, I know. He keeps around, over, his tears yeah, rolling down his face. It's like my life. I could have had that. No, I could have been a failed writer instead of, you know, a marginally <laughs> successful learning designer. That needs to be on a T-shirt. I could have been a failed writer. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. So, um, so, yeah, so, 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 so why, what happens to them and why do they rebel? And it's because even if you lock down all these things throughout life, they're going to have these experiences. There might be some innate thing that makes them want to live longer and live their lives to the full. And so I think the absence of the Montessori method doesn't mean that you're entirely screwed. I think it, can, it will help you find yourself and find your place, maybe from what I've heard. It seems to build on what you have. But even if you don't have it, there are still ways around it and still ways to end up rebelling. And some of the themes in Blade Runner around individuality and that freedom of choice mm. are some of the central pillars to yeah. the Montessori method, reinforcing their importance. I think so, yeah. So I think that answers the question. And how did I, how did I do? Uh, I think considering that you were given two completely disparate things to bash <laughs> into each other, I chose Montessori because I thought it would be a really crap fit. I think I think I think you managed a uh, oh, lovely job. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, they succeed despite they rebel despite their lack of the Montessori uh, teaching. Uh, however, their rebellion itself does uh, does reinforce the importance of the underlying principles of the method. I think is a, a lovely lovely way to sum it up. Well, well done. Well, done. Uh, yes. capital capital job, old chap. So let's. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about um, just kind of. The general uh, general teaching principles throughout, but uh, but I suppose top level tips for your own teaching, uh, particularly HE. And by the way, it's still a bit cross that there's nothing uh, Montessori esque for for adult learners. Um, I think some of the principles do uh, do carry through in adult life. Uh, particularly, I think I think uh, being in diverse in groups diverse, uh, not just from one's immediate age group, which becomes I think broader and less important the older one gets, but. Uh, Broader than one's immediate sphere of. Um, you know, when you do that voice, you gesticulate far more. <laughs> Channeling my. Right. I want to see more as a facilitator. 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 <laughs> I, can't, I can't keep it up. Okay, you're going to hear a beep in a second. Okay. That's because I went back to my original voice, having noticed oh, yeah, that yeah. I, I was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as a, tips for educators. Yeah. I mean, uh, try and remember that your that your students aren't just there to learn what you need to tell them. They aren't just. This is why the employability thing, it's useful, it's good, we need to be employable, but it's only half of what our lives are. And if you're only teaching to be for students to be employable, then you are failing half of your job because there's a whole other side of it, which is to do all the things that Mike was talking about he does in his life, um, which was quite, quite, quite a wide list. I mean, I just read and watch telly. Wonderful. Yeah. But supporting that, making validating that as an option, validating the introverts as much as the extroverts, validating the people that aren't good at maths as well as those that are, all those sorts of things. I think that's part, I mean, okay, we talked about critical pedagogy and I'm just covering old ground. Um, but, um, but I think being aware of that, that you can do that even not, if you're not in, a, not in a Montessori school. Otherwise, you are just creating your own, another generation of replicants and we could be a lot better than that. 
That is a good thing to end on, okay. by God. Oh, it's so good to end on. I always want to say, I love their curriculum. I think their curriculum's great. Mm-hmm. It's a really good looking curriculum. <laughs> oh, but unfortunately, Mark's line was a better one to end on. God damn it. <laughs> Stupid. Mark tying up threads in the narrative. Right, bugger it. Let's finish this. <laughs> okay. So I think we're on to the question. We're giving you a practical tip. Who knows? We'll maybe try this format again where it'll just ambush Mark again with a disjointed bit of pop culture and a weird bit of pedagogy. But on the basis he did quite well today, maybe I won't because it's only funny if it goes wrong. Um, Anyway, thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can do it via the Twitters, at pedagodzilla, uh, where you'll get hold of me. Uh, there's also Mark available on Twitter. You can get at... At Mark Childs. No space, no underscore, just yep. at Mark Childs, because yep, he is... The OG. He was... Who's that? I don't know what that means, that but... That OG handle. Um, <laughs> okay. OG, I think it's like original... Original. Oh, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, maybe. That seems like a bad abbreviation. Maybe it's like original grifter. Whoa. Sketchy. Um, Anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again next time. Bye-bye now. Bye. You've done a man's job, sir. Are we done here? What? (laughs) Is that a quote? Yeah. (laughs) I remember. What? I just... (laughs) That's what... That's the... Okay, at the end, so Rick Deckard's lying there and he's just got his hand all boot broken and all that, and he's on the rooftop, and then the fliver lands down, and then uh, John Ol- no, Olmos, what's his name, James Ol- Olmos, Olmos, gets out the gaff and goes, you've done a man's job here. Are we done? Are you done a man's job, sir? Are we done here? No memory of this whatsoever. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Maybe, maybe I saw like one of the 15 cuts where that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I think it happens in all of them. But when I was watching, I thought, you know what, that'd be a good outro for the podcast <laughs> clip clear okay but now completely undermined by the fact you made me explain it <laughs> oh no i broke mark's joke <laughs> oh but by now the music will have faded out yeah okay yeah, just, yeah. Our, our voice I'll, I'll have faded our voices right, point, which is still relevant and funny and not me going <laughs> <laughs>